You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. This message here, I'm going to do a little bit of a deep dive. Romans chapter 3. I want to begin to talk about some theology and also want to begin a practicum of an exercise on God's love and forgiveness. I'm concerned, Paul, in these first three chapters, he's, he's such that brilliant theologian, I'm concerned that it kind of goes a little bit over your head. I know it can be mine. If it goes over your head, you're in good company because the apostle Peter says in his writings, hey, you know that guy Paul? Sometimes I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Like he says that at the end of his epistle. Some of the words literally are hard, is what Peter is saying. And so, so I want to I wanna, I wanna dive a little bit there. I, I want to reread uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and on, which says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I will come back to that word propitiation. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. So Jesus, give now by the power of the Holy Spirit clarity and inspiration to the preaching of your word that we might be your church, that we might hear your gospel. Amen. Let's chase chase this idea of, of, I gotta do this, of, of, God's love and forgiveness. So, so let me ask you, who's your master? Who's your master? Maybe you'd be prone to very quickly tell me that Jesus is your master, and I would hope that would be the case. But if we wanted to prove that, there's a few things we would simply do. You have your phone, you have your digital device, it's probably tracking through a couple apps what you're doing and how you're spending your day and all the things that you're involved in. So let's look at your phone. I know I can do it with my kids, they don't like it. And they're older now, you know, so they're like, hey, let me see your phone, see what you're doing all day. Dad! But that will tell me what kind of apps have you been on? what you've been doing with your day. And if that doesn't work, then we can get even more private, which of course we won't, but just for conversation and preaching, we would look at your checkbook and see just exactly how and where you're spending your money. Is it on kingdom purposes? Is it on kingdom desires? Are you managing your affairs well? Is that honorably before God? In other words, who's your master? Because the answer to that question is actually gonna affect God's love and forgiveness. The answer to who's your master, who has mastery over your life, who has mastery over the global nature of your life will actually affect love and forgiveness. Your ability to receive it has nothing to do with God giving it. He's gonna give it. He went to the cross. He loves you. But the nature of your reception of that, Jesus says here 
in this very interesting verse in just by way of cross-reference, uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. We're here in the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus is going to say this very, very candidly. He's going to say, no one can serve two masters. I'm going to just ask you, who's your master? It's related to this teaching in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 24, where Jesus says, no one can serve two, serve two masters. Okay, here's why. For either he will, he will hate the one and love the other, you know that to be true. Or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus will make the next comment. It's related to money. It serves the overall global nature of who's your master, but he's going to say, you cannot serve God and money or God and mammon. Just this idea of this spirit and actually mammon, an evil spirit that will take possession of your heart related to money, causing all kinds of stress and all kinds of anxiety and all kinds of bondage that so many people find themselves enslaved to. And so who's your master? We see this in culture. So if you want to get into literature or if you want to get into anything of popular culture, basically every generation that I'm looking at for the most part has been raised on Star Wars. And my kids have little battles with me on my Star Wars affection from my youthful roots and those movies to theirs and the more recent and modern times. But no matter what in the storyline, which is so common to Star Wars people and just in our society, the storyline revolves around a drama by a guy named Luke Skywalker and whether he will allow his master to be the dark side. No, George Lucas is not a Christian. He's not writing, he's not designing a Christian film. And it's not his intention to use Christian allegory, but he steps into it in that sense. Or, since now I'm hopefully you're enjoying the Olympics as I'm enjoying the Olympics and uh, all the drama with that, it's so fascinating to watch from whatever country these athletes perform and they have trained and they have trained and they have trained and some have amazing stories where in their youthfulness they were not able to accomplish the goals or they got disqualified or they had a cold that day and so they didn't do well but they stuck with it they stuck with it and they stuck with it and now they get olympic gold to be that athlete they would tell you you cannot have two masters you cannot like eating M&Ms and being an Olympic athlete at a high level. You have to change your diet. You have to change your lifestyle. You have to change when you wake up. You have to change everything about you. So church, I'm asking you, it's related to your reception, not God's giving. God has given to you through the cross his love and forgiveness. He loves you. It's related to your reception of that. Who's your master? If it's anything else other than Jesus, well, then that's going to have consequences. By way of cross-reference, Romans chapter 1, just to talk about the idea of master. So, if you've been with the Ranch Church, you know that I've taught on this on more than one occasion. For in chapter 1, verse 1, the Apostle Paul will say, Paul, a servant, a servant. Okay, so this is where I have to pick on our English translators a bit because this word in the original is a word that Christians know very well. It's called doulos. 
Now listen, there's a phrase in preaching, it's called hollerback preaching. I don't know if you ever heard that. And so on occasion, I like some hollerback preaching. You know, maybe it's because I don't hear that well, that we're hearing aids or all of that. Or maybe it's because I just like the back and forth of the Spirit. But I want you all to say the word doulos. Okay, that's a Greek word. You just spoke Greek. Now it's no longer Greek to you. So this word doulos in all of literature, in secular literature in the ancient world, in Christian literature during the days of Paul, had one single meaning. Slave. Literal translation is, I, Paul, who am an apostle, am a slave of Jesus Christ. What's happened is that actually American colonial slavery has put sort of a backdrop on even Bible translation, making Bible translators academically a little shy of putting that in there because they're afraid, and somewhat appropriately so, that if we were to see the word slave, we would somehow think that the Bible is justifying that bad behavior which sort of came over our land in the era of 1776. We had a civil war, we had all those Jim Crow things, and we had civil rights, all of the stuff that's even going on right now. And so they're bypassing that by simply saying servant. Your pastor is saying that's a mistake. The word is a slave. And it has some implications that are, that are very real and very necessary for us to actually understand. For an example, if you're a slave, and we're talking about now ancient times during the time of Israel, during the time of these days of Greece, during the times of Jesus at the cross, of the 12 tribes of Israel, during those ancient of times, thousands and thousands of years ago, if you were a slave and you had debts, it was the master's duty to cancel that debt on your behalf. It was his responsibility. And it wasn't that he would come back and torture you or squeeze you. That was, that was not what was the purpose in ancient Israel. There were, there were boundaries related to that. Very, very serious boundaries before God. But if you had debts, it was your master's job to pay those debts. One way to think of it is somewhat like this. So if you... If you go back to the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel comes with several million people into what we now know basically as modern Israel. And they go by the family names. Isn't it fascinating that we're here at ag culture and that this land was once divided according to Indian tribes by family names? It's the same basic principle. And so let's take the tribe of Judah, which has Jerusalem as its headquarters. Okay, so it's the tribe of Judah. Well, that's the family of the tribe of Judah. They own all the land. Now let's say that you come from what we'd say modern day Jordan, that would be east of the Jordan, and you just like the Israelites. Hey, they do good business, they're into education, everything is growing wonderfully in that land, it's very green, I want a piece of it. I wanna go in there, I wanna be part of Judah, I wanna be part of Jerusalem, and I wanna bring my family there, I wanna set up shop there. Well, you can't buy land, can you? You're locked out because your family name does not belong there, but you want to do business, you want to do commerce, you want to do education, and so you would voluntarily allow yourself and your family to be, in that sense, enslaved. There's various phrases of that, but you bond yourself to a family, and they adopt you, they take you in, and they will, through their family line, begin to give you freedom and begin to give you land. This is the nature of having a master. 
So now, now if somebody comes from a foreign land, back from your original family of origin, and they come and they meet you in the tribe of Judah over there in Jerusalem, and they say, hey, hey, back in the day you had some debts. Back in the day you had some injustice, and now we're going to ask for you to pay for that. That master, that family, before God would stick up for you and say, no, 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 no. You don't bring that dirt from another land and come into our tribe and bring this accusation that cannot be justified against my family, even if they're enslaved to me in that sense. No. You either go away or I'll deal business right now and never come back here and do that. This was the nature of protection. This is what it meant. I have a master. I've allowed myself to be enslaved to this master. I'm not tortured. That's why that whole colonial slavery image doesn't work. No, I'm actually beneath a loving, kind, powerful, benevolent master. And I've attached myself to a family which is seeking God and seeking righteousness. And I have a covering. It's called the headship. And I have that over my life. And I am actually in servitude there. And I'm in love and relationship there. Who's your master? Here's a fascinating one if you love the Bible. This will probably be interesting to you in the life of Joseph. This is the latter chapters of the book of Genesis. Joseph is sold into slavery. Everybody say yes. Thank you. He's rescued out of that slavery and he's put in Potiphar's house who's, who's working for Pharaoh. Potiphar's wife does him wrong. He's put back in a dungeon. Everybody say yes. yes. Then God is so sovereign because he's got a plan and purpose in his life that he raises Joseph up at the right time in front of Pharaoh himself. I mean, one day he's in the dungeon. In fact, the text says in the Bible they had actually had to clean him up. I mean, he's so, he's so grimy, he's so dirty, he's so scummy in that sense. They're not bathing him. He doesn't look appropriate. They can't have him in front of the king, and so they actually have to clean him up. They actually clean him up, shave him, whatever the case is. They put real nice clothes on him, and one day he's in the dungeon. One day he's before Pharaoh. He says all the right things that need to be said before Pharaoh in terms of what God has told him about seven days of plenty and seven days of want and how to manage everything, how to manage everything. And Pharaoh, the king, says, you know what? You got the job. You're the prime minister. You're the organizer. In fact, I give you my signet ring. I put it on you. I'll have a chariot that will go throughout the land so everybody knows that Joseph is in charge. And you and I know that story. And go, That's amazing. Joseph is the prime minister. He was once a slave in the dungeon. Let me tell you, Joseph is prime minister. Is actually still the slave. And we know that because after Joseph leaves, his family line, do you catch this? His family line, the text says in Exodus, there came a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph's people, and so they're actually enslaved and still slaves. That's how that happened. So he made himself a slave beneath a benevolent uh, a master who was Pharaoh, and he accomplished God's purposes. Psalm 123, I'll read it to you related to the idea of master. This is great. This is from the Song of Ascent. This is beautiful scripture here. It says in Psalm 123, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold 
as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master. There it is. Speaking about God, look to the hand of their master. As the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress. Again, speaking about God in the feminine there for a moment. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. It's the idea that the master would truly, truly act mercifully. Now back to Romans. That's all warming up to introduction. I want to camp on verses 23, 24, 25, and 26. 23 famously says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 24 says, and are justified by his grace. So what's fascinating in preaching circles, you know what's going on with our culture? This is terrible what I'm about to say, this whole idea of like being woke. I don't know what that is. Not sure if I want to know what that is. All I know is I want to be awake to God. I want you to be awake to God. And we want to be about his will. And you will say, amen. amen. So there are people who say, don't use these terms like justified. How are you going to know the Bible if you are trying to, you know, X out words? The word justifies means that there was something wrong in your relationship with God and God took care of it. And are justified by his grace. And in case you don't know what the grace is, it says it in the next phrase there. And is a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now more, more to the point, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Okay, so propitiation. Do you guys want to say that word out loud? Do you want to holler that word back at me? It's a very odd word. Propitiation. So in the original Greek, it's this word that's kind of fun to say, helisterion. Helisterion. And what it means is that somebody was upset. Somebody had wrath. Somebody had anger, and it was justified. Most of our human anger is not justified. In fact, we're really called to be at peace. God is different. God is perfect. And so he's actually able to say, you are in the wrong, and he can be upset about that. And so, so the word propitiation is so fascinating because it says, okay, you needed to be justified. You were in error, and I came and satisfied all of that. And so I'm now actually satisfied with you, which is another way of God saying, I'm now actually happy with you because my son Jesus Christ is in your life. I'm actually satisfied deeply. And so this wrath no longer exists. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And this is a relationship directly to what's called the mercy seat. I'm going to go to Hebrews here. I didn't make a note of my Bible. Hang on, i got to work for this. And I want to look at Hebrews chapter 1. And this is a little bit of a lengthy section. Let me try and see if I can be a good reader here and read this because this this I want you to actually look at tonight. I want, you to, I want you to get this. So Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, where are you? It's the same basic thing. So, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which there was a lampstand and a table and a bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which there was a golden ark, golden urn holding the, the manna, Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant, which is Ten Commandments. And above it are the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of which these things we can now speak in detail. And every Bible preacher and Bible student says, please, Paul, I wish you had spoken more in detail. 
There's a description of this ancient tent where it's, it's a little bigger than this, but there'd be sections. And there's a more holy section that was sacred. Now here's the description of that. For these preparations have thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes but once a year and not without taking blood. Can you say blood? Not without taking blood. Because the life is in the blood according to the teaching of Leviticus. For which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates by the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. Continuing on, bear with me now. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What that is saying is that as we went through these rituals, we went through what Jesus told us to do, and we went through the teachings of Moses. Yes, it had a moment of justification. It didn't change your heart. It didn't change what was in the inside. We needed to get to that. Now, last section. Here you go. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own. What's that word say? Blood. Blood. His own blood. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And we could all get really crazy Pentecostal and start shouting amen because that's true. This is the, the theology going back to Romans now of what we've read about this word propitiation and about this covering, passing over this divine forbearance. That was actually the theology of that. Speaking of a mercy seat where God would actually visit in the Ark of the Covenant and this blood would be poured on there and God's presence would come and then he would absolve everyone. But it would not affect the conscience the way it does now. I'm gonna press farther. Church, who's your master? Who's your master? I had an interesting time sharing Christ recently with somebody who said, I am. I said, my brother, thank you for being honest that you are actually your master. You know what that means? According to the Bible, it means you're worldly. And so, and so our culture is defining you. And your peer group is simply defining you. And your profession is defining you. And that's all you got. And he looks at me and goes, is that why I feel empty inside? Yes. That is exactly why. If you're, the other option, if you're not your master, is the devil. Where your flesh will then isolate you. Keep you away from people who love you. Promote feelings of loneliness inside you make you feel like there's despair and no hope, make you feel like you need to take your own life or harm yourself. 
Make you feel like all of your mistakes have, have sort of risen up against you and there's nothing that can be done. I have good news for you. The Lord Jesus Christ is on the move in your life and everything can be done. Because if heaven is for you and heaven is with you, then there's no demon or devil that can oppose you. Or, who's your master? It could be Jesus, by which Jesus Christ brings liberty. This is the most interesting thing about the Christian life in so many ways. That yes, we're talking about God being our master and we're enslaved to him, which means that we have chains to him, but those are actually the chains of liberty. Those are actually the chains of freedom. So let's speak about God's love and forgiveness and how this works. A couple principles here that we're gonna get after. What you have to understand, by way of reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. I love this verse. I love this verse and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Because in that section, Paul's gonna say, hey, here's all this bad behavior. He's gonna start and talk about sex. And he's gonna talk about adultery. He's gonna talk about the whole LGBTQ thing. And he's gonna talk about many, many other things. He's gonna call them swindlers and defilers and all kinds of language. And you know what he's gonna say? And such were some of you. The blood of Christ cleansed you. Which means that the church is full of people who are simply gonna say, and so was I at one time. Somewhat that way or much that way. And then Christ came into my life. And so the first principle simply is that God loves and saves sinners. And so are you a mess? Good news. God loves you. He actually loves you. He loves and he actually saves sinners. And so there's nothing that you can do morally to save yourself. And there's no moral immorality, I should say it that way, that can actually keep you from the love of God. God actually loves and saves sinners. Secondly, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Second principle, confess your sin. The word confession in the original simply means to agree. That's what it means. Actually, literally, if you want to talk Greek, it's homo legeo. Homo, we get a word for homosexual, the same, in terms of same-sex attraction. Homo legeo, same words. It's an agreement. There's, I've told you guys versions of the story for with the Ranch Church as a home, but just sort of an illustration in a more shortened form. I'm in my early 20s, and I'm a very immoral young man. All of my actions have come up upon me. Ever been there? You find yourself, you go, I am living out a lifestyle complete opposite of what I said I would ever do regularly. I find myself at this Christian conference and they had actually a seminar called God, Love and Forgiveness. And I didn't know if they were being serious or not, but the people I was with said, you have to go to this. Now I kind of laugh about that. <laughs> I, think they, I think they knew, you know? And so, so I attend, because I didn't know any different. I go, okay, great. I'll go to the seminar called How to Experience God's Love and Forgiveness. That sounds great. And in front of this room teaching was this woman by the name of Cynthia Burnett. And I say her name because she was a wonderful missionary. And if Cynthia Burnett was four feet tall, she was, she was four feet taller than what she really was. I mean, this was a very tiny, tiny person with a big God on fire. And so she really just opened the Bible 
and began to read verses on God's love and forgiveness, and God's verse on God's love and forgiveness, and she simply stopped and said, and God can forgive you. And then she went on, and then she went on, and then she went on. I don't know how long the seminar was on, but then I began to feel that God was talking to me as God is talking to you. And so I got convicted. I didn't know what conviction was. I didn't know what that phrase was. And so here I was trying to be cool, and I started crying out loud. Now you gotta understand my Caribbean roots. We're good criers. <laughs> All right, we can wail pretty good. And so I'm wailing pretty good in front of hundreds and of others, very good looking, charming college students. But I didn't care anymore, and I'm wailing. I'm literally just crying. And so when that seminar was done, this is how I found out that she was only four feet or whatever. It's because she was up on a platform. Then she gets down and she's like really tiny. And so, and so I'm, I'm like towering over her. And I don't know what I said, but she grabbed my hands and she says, you're gonna sit here right now. And she says, the Holy Spirit has brought conviction on your life. She goes, so God, God in Christ is now gonna forgive your sin. And I cry and I say, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And she goes, so here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna get a pen out and you're gonna write all of your sins out right now and God's gonna forgive them. And you know what I said? I said, we're gonna be here a long time. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna go into extra innings on this for sure. You know, we're gonna, this is gonna be overtime. You know, and so as best I could, I'm just writing things that I wanna be forgiven out. What she's trying to do is simply get me to focus and to confess and to repent. And then she writes 1 John 1, 9. And so I take that list, which was several pages, and I hold on to it. And listen, you have to get this literally true. She goes, oh no. She grabs my hands and she has to wrestle to get that away from me. As sometimes right now, the Holy Spirit has to grab you to wrestle, to grab that confession of sin because in our flesh, we feel like we should hold on to it. We feel like we should grab onto it. And so she wrestles it away and she tears it up and she gets a trash can and she throws it away and she says, that's what Jesus Christ has done with your sin. He has thrown it away and he has paid the price of every single penalty that you would ever have because he himself is God and has come here and he has actually died the death that you should have died. He's resurrected in a way that you need to be resurrected and he has now released the Holy Spirit to save your life, to give you new marching orders and to live in a whole new way. You have been cleansed. You have been redeemed. And it's by no work of ritual and no self-effort and no morality is the actual supernatural work of Christ And so we confess our sin. We agree with God, and he takes it away. Third principle by, and it's why I read Hebrews chapter 9, is that we bring the blood of Jesus to cleanse every sin and stain. Old hymn. We bring the blood to cleanse every sin and stain. Fourth, this is great news. We celebrate being cleansed and being made new. I mean, we celebrate that. You come forward when we call for an altar call for prayer, we celebrate that. And we celebrate when you get baptized. And we like to really hold sinners down really good, sometimes twice. <laughs> we celebrate that. And when we celebrate when you, when you have a, a confession, we celebrate that. 
Listen, pastor, I, I, I really struggled today. I really struggled with this. Come and pray with me and pray for the, yes, yes, yes. We, we celebrate that. We also celebrate when you tell, tell us, I, I entered into a little bit of a covenant of prayer to be faithful with somebody, and they began to finally have those, those, those victories that they needed because I was praying for them every day, and we joined together to pray every day, and then they, then they came back. It, it, took, it took, frankly, months. It didn't take days. It took weeks. It took months. They would come and tell me, I just fell again. Okay, so that's great. Let's bring the blood of Christ. Let's bring the blood of Christ. Let's bring the blood of Christ. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Let's get in the word, and God has not given up on you. Hey, pastor, I'm actually putting that sin behind me. It's now been a couple days. It's now been a couple weeks. It's now been a couple months. Yes! Yes! We celebrate being cleansed. We celebrate being made new. We celebrate the walk on the journey. That's what Paul is getting at here when he talks about this final and complete work from the cross to show the righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Fifth and last, references Galatians chapter five. We walk with your master and enjoy freedom. Jesus Christ to the Christian is actually your master. And here's, here's what we have to understand. I gotta be a little careful because I gotta talk about my sons for a moment. I have four of them. I love them all, they're great kids. Talk about the master and the slave and sons and daughters. I don't know what you were like as a younger son and daughter in your home. I know that I was a strong-willed kid and that I was very capable, I was verbally very strong and I was capable of talking back to my mom and dad. I know you might have a hard time believing that. Sometimes they would say something very simple and I could talk back. My, my sons love me very, very much and they're very respectful, frankly, with me they're still capable of talking back. And they're still capable of pushing back. So sometimes the biblical imagery of a son and daughter, I fear, sometimes tells you that that's the behavior of sons and daughters because we're used to doing it in this part of our world. Let me ask you, how often does a slave talk back to the master? Come on, church, I'm asking you, how often? Yeah, that's right. Because that master knows and if I don't have that master that frees me, I have debt. That master has freed me of my debt. If I'm not attached to that master and following that master, then all the other people and all the other schemes of the world that want to enter this new land and bring accusation in my life and tear my life down and bring all kinds of guilt and bring all kinds of shame. By the way, I gave up guilt and shame a long time ago. So should you. That all those external forces are allowed in. I stay attached to that master. That master rebukes him. That master keeps him away. That master gives me the blessing. That master gives me the promise. That master gives me the strength. That master gives me the life. And that master takes me all the way home because he promised. Walk with your master. Galatians chapter 5. Read the whole chapter. 
enjoy freedom, taste really good. I need to do something, church. I've been praying about this even on my vacation, and I'm not sure how to do it, so let's see how we can do. I'm not asking you to come forward right now and confess, you know, in some public, inappropriate way, every dirty, scummy thing or whatever. I am asking you that the activation of faith requires you to make public acknowledgement at certain times and seasons of your life. Some of it is just to come forward and to confess and to say, I am struggling with sin. Just lay hands and pray. And that's all right. Jesus Christ, he died on the cross publicly. So he calls Christians to public places of faith and activation. Our faith is so unique because it's private, where certain integrity is cultivated, but then it's cemented by public activity. That's why just sharing Christ requires a verbal witness. You have to actually say something at least. Our church and your life is, is, is facing a culture. And this is the purpose of Paul. He was in that same place facing a culture. It is like a tsunami that is trying to lift up higher and higher against anything holy, anything sacred, anything having to do with Christ. And I will tell you that we're going in two directions now. And it requires your repentance and confession because we're going in two directions. There will be one direction truly right now of a revival based on confession like we're talking about here. There is another that is based on very serious and strong political opposition at every level. The power to overcome all of that requires you to agree with God to be cleansed inside. The power of supernatural ability which saved the world and brought revival is the basic confession and the bringing of the blood of Jesus. So I don't know what you're carrying. Trust me, I love every single one of you. I don't know what your burdens are. Christ can carry them. And the church can care for them. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.